Amen. You can be seated. Good morning. And good morning to our viewers online as well. Like Doug said, we are launching a new sermon series, Galatians Free at Last. So the overarching theme of Galatians is freedom. Not just freedom from the bondage of sin and death and legalism, but freedom to experience all that God intends for us. This freedom, though, is only found in the pure, unadulterated gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is what we'll be focusing on as we go through the book of Galatians uh, throughout the summer. All right. So I have never been a good dancer. I always wanted to be a good dancer. Uh, I appreciate good dancing. Uh, I've loved watching um, ballroom dancing. My wife and I have watched Dancing with the Stars on TV. I even enjoyed going to the ballet uh, when I lived in Kansas City. Um, I think I last saw a production of Alice in Wonderland, a ballet production. It was, it was really cool. But dancing is certainly not my strength. So in this series on Galatians, we will be learning the steps of a dance, the dance of grace that we find in Galatians. This dance will free us from the trappings of legalism and the idea that Christianity is simply a set of rules that we have to follow in order to get into heaven. I want to encourage you, too, to read through the book of Galatians, maybe even several times through. It's only six chapters, so it probably take you about 20 minutes to read all the way through. You will get more out of this series if you read through Galatians a few times. Read it slowly. Read it prayerfully. Um, ask God, do you have anything you want to show me? And he will highlight some things to you. Ask him, is there anything you want me to change as a result of this book? And he will show you. Okay, Galatians was written in AD 49, making it the earliest New Testament book. This is less than 20 years after the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. Martin Luther, you've heard of him father of the Protestant Reformation, um, he was saved through his studies of this book of Galatians. And it was Martin Luther's commentary on Galatians that saved Charles Wesley. Charles Wesley um, is the brother of John Wesley, and the two of them founded the Methodist denomination. My mic's a little tight or loose on my ear. All right. So Galatians, and probably uh, Romans as well, are the most clear descriptions of the gospel in the Bible. Galatians is a declaration of freedom from the condemnation of sin and is a declaration of freedom from a performance mindset. That salvation is found in God, by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ and nothing else. We look to Jesus Christ who is the culmination of all the promises of the Old Testament and we are made righteous through him and only through him. Not by our being good, not by our morality, 
not by our being a model Christian, um, not by all the things that we do or all the things that we don't do. People who say, I don't do this, I don't do that because I'm a Christian, um, I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't dance, I don't play cards, I don't associate with those kinds of people, I don't let my kids associate with those kinds of people, I don't put my kids in public school, all the don'ts that people can come up with. Galatians is about protecting the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ from those who would try to add to it or pollute it or corrupt it in some way. Usually, usually by well-meaning people who think that Jesus plus these extra rules will equal a better life. So Paul wrote Galatians to a group of Christians who were dealing with false teachers. These false teachers were called Judaizers. These were new churches that Paul had planted, and these Judaizers were teaching a different gospel. The Judaizers were requiring the Gentiles, and Gentiles are people who aren't Jews, so if you're not a Jew like me, then you are a Gentile, to do these extra Jewish things in order to really be true Christians. Things like observing a Jewish diet and being circumcised, like as an adult. I know one person in my whole life who decided to be circumcised as an adult. I can't even imagine. Paul reminded the Galatians that any attempt, any attempt to add some kind of human effort to the gospel of Jesus Christ absolutely denies the work of grace and renders Christ's death meaningless. So in the words of Paul in Galatians 3.3, he says, how foolish can you be? After starting your new lives in the spirit, why are you now trying to become perfect by your own human effort? If keeping the law can make us right with God, then there would be no need for Jesus to die. Grace is the beginning, grace is the middle, and grace is the end. So just like Jesus reserves some of his harshest remarks for the Pharisees, you know, those religious folks, Paul's words to those being influenced by the Judaizers, I'll, I'll call them the Jesus plus crowd, Jesus plus this, Jesus plus that. His words were very strong. He was angry at times. Like Jesus, Paul's harshest words were reserved for those who would pull people away from the pure gospel of grace. So these Judaizers had infiltrated the churches that Paul planted in the region of Galatia. And they were saying to the non-Jews, if you are going to follow Jesus, you also need to be culturally a Jew. So Paul wrote this letter to help them understand that the gospel of Jesus Christ is Jesus plus nothing. That's the name of the message this morning. Jesus plus nothing. Because it is absolutely by God's grace that we come into saving faith in Jesus.
So in Galatians chapters 1 and 2, this grace is defined. In chapters 3 and 4, this grace is explained. And in chapters 5 and 6, this grace is applied. Like what does it look like to actually walk this out in our lives? So as we read Galatians today, in 21st century Fergus Falls, Minnesota, right, it can help us to move away from the bondage of legalism and toward the dance of grace. And that's what we're focusing on today. So if I were to ask you this question, do you think you're a legalist? Probably everyone here would say no. The problem is most legalists don't realize they're legalists. They tend to think they're just following God's word. They tend to think of themselves as good Christians. They don't see themselves as a Pharisee. They see themselves as trying to be righteous. Now I'm going to go out on a limb and I'm going to make a statement. Legalism can be a disease in the church, but most people who suffer from it mistake it for holiness. They tend to set standards for themselves and view others who don't abide, those same, who don't abide by those same standards as carnal, as sinful, as backsliding. I'm sure you've heard that word before, backsliding. So is there a practical way to tell if you have legalistic tendencies? If legalism is a disease, then is there a way to see the symptoms? So first off, what is legalism? If you look up on the screen, I've got a few definitions here. So the first one is Merriam-Webster's Collegiate Dictionary. It says legalism is strict, literal, or excessive conformity to the law or to a religious moral code. And then David Miller, in his book, Breaking Free, Rescuing Families from the Clutches of Legalism, wrote, legalists are people who add personal preference to accepted doctrinal teaching, accept these additions as having equal weight with doctrinal teaching, and apply these additions in the judging of others. And then Mark Buchanan, in his book, The Rest of God, wrote, legalism is the reduction of life to mere technicalities. It substitutes code for conscience, ritual for worship, rectitude for holiness, morality for purity. So you may have already done this already, um, but take a look on the back of your sermon notes. Uh, we're going to take a little quiz together. This is also, uh, this will also be on the screen. Here is a checklist I came up with of 21 legalistic tendencies. Okay? If you have a pen, I encourage you to circle yes or no for each of these. All right? Number one, I believe that God loves me more when I behave. Yes or no? Number two, when I encounter another person, even another Christian, I find myself judging them by their appearance or their actions. Yes or no? Number three, my good friends are all believers, and if I'm honest, I prefer it that way. Yes or no? 
Okay, number four. When I miss a Sunday service, I often feel guilty. Number five. When I miss any church activity, I often feel guilty. Number six. When I sin, I usually feel guilty even after I ask God to forgive me. Number seven, I think is a little funny. In a snow-covered parking lot, I feel anxious because I can't see the parking lines. <laughs> yes or no? <laughs> Number eight, I almost never exceed the speed limit, and those who do deserve it if they get a ticket. I have gotten many speeding tickets. <laughs> but not yet in Fergus. <laughs> Okay, number nine, when someone gives me a gift or does something nice for me, I feel unsettled until I can reciprocate. Number 10, I always try to clean my house thoroughly before anyone visits, even if they're just popping by. Number 11, I would prefer my children avoid contact with sinful people, i.e. people who aren't good Christians. Mm, now it's getting uncomfortable. <laughs> Number 12, I prefer to do things myself rather than accept help from people who may be less conscientious than I am. Number 13, there is a right way and a wrong way to do everything. Number 14, I have had a conversion experience, but I still sometimes doubt my salvation. Number 15, I have a sneaking suspicion that if Jesus returned while I was committing a sin, I might not go to heaven. Number 16, it feels good to judge or punish people who commit minor infractions. Number 17, I like to make an example out of wrongdoers. Number 18, Others could describe me as negative and complaining rather than joyful and gracious. 19, I feel guilty if I skip Bible reading or prayer. 20, I feel like God is often disappointed in me when I make mistakes or don't measure up. And 21, even though there isn't a specific scripture indicating such, there are certain things you just don't do if you are a good Christian. So if you circled yes to several of these, it is likely that you struggle with a distorted view of God and his word. It is possible that you are legalistic. They may say otherwise, but legalistic people generally are not very happy people. Life is a ledger, and they're always trying to measure up. They feel better only when they're performing well or when they're judging others for their bad behavior. It never ends. You can never rest. Here's the good news. Jesus paid the price for all of your sins. 
And he absolutely fulfilled the requirements of the law for perfection. If you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, then when God looks at you, he sees Jesus. God has saved you to live a joyful and abundant life. And all the rest of our days are to be lived not trying to measure up to some kind of standard, but in thankfulness for what Christ has already done for us. We don't need to keep score. We don't need to measure ourselves and everyone else against some impossible standard. There is nothing that you can do to make God love you any more or any less. Anyone who tells you otherwise is wrong. At the same time, Galatians also shows us what it looks like to live in the freedom of the Spirit, where we are empowered by the Spirit, we are dependent on the Spirit, we are following the leading of the Holy Spirit, and we are bearing the fruit of the Spirit. It's not an outside-in thing. It is an inside-out thing. It is not being bound by the law, but being freed to live under the leading of the Holy Spirit. So we start with Galatians 1.1. First part of that says, this letter is from Paul, an apostle. So the author of the letter is Paul. That's the name Jesus gave him. Before that, he was called Saul. Saul was born into a Jewish family from the tribe of Benjamin. He grew up in Tarshish and was educated under the famous Rabbi Gamaliel. He was also a Roman citizen. He was a strict Pharisee who persecuted the church. We first meet him in the Bible as he is standing there holding the coats of the men who were stoning Stephen to death. He hated the Christians and he went from town to town rounding up men and women. The Bible says he was eager to kill the Lord's followers. And it was on one of these missions that he had an experience that changed his life and the, the direction of his life forever. On the road to the city of Damascus, he had an encounter with the risen Christ. It's in Acts 9, 3 through 6. It says, as he was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Saul was blinded by the light and wandered into Damascus with the help of his companions. God led a follower of Jesus named Ananias to go and pray for Saul. And when he did, says in verses 18 and 19, Acts 9, says instantly something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he regained his sight. Then he got up and was baptized. Afterward, he ate some food and regained his strength. So by the grace of God, the persecutor became the preacher. The destroyer of the kingdom of God, right, 
of the Christian faith became the builder of the kingdom of God. Paul would be the one to take the gospel to the Gentiles. He would do miracles. He would get beaten. He would get stoned. He would get nearly killed several times. He would go on to write two-thirds of the New Testament. And if the historian Eusebius is correct, he would be martyred for his faith. He would be beheaded. The second half of uh, verse 1 there says, I was not appointed by any group of people or any human authority, but by Jesus Christ himself and by God the Father who raised Jesus from the dead. So these Judaizers were questioning Paul's credentials, which is why he begins the way he does. He wasn't one of the 12 apostles that Jesus originally commissioned. They had seen the risen Christ and had been taught by him, but so had Paul. He too had seen the risen Lord and had been commissioned by him. Okay, verse two there, it says, all the brothers and sisters here join me in sending this letter to the churches of Galatia. So who was Paul writing this letter to? Notice the word there, churches, is plural. There's a map that should be coming up. Um, shows you Galatia. Galatia wasn't a city, but it was a geopolitical Roman region in southern Turkey, which included the cities of Derby, Iconium, Lystra, and Pisidia, Antioch. Uh, people generally wanted to live there because it was fertile, uh, fertile plain, good for farming. Verses three through five say, uh, my, may God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. Jesus gave his life for our sins just as God our Father planned in order to rescue us from this evil world in which we live. All glory to God forever and ever. Amen. So the main point of Paul's message is this verse four. And it'll come back up there. That Jesus gave his life for our sins, just as God our Father planned, in order to rescue us from this evil world in which we live. So as I was preparing uh, for this series, I, I studied several commentaries, but one in particular that stood out to me was Martin Luther's commentary on the book of Galatians. Um, and as I read what Luther had to say about this one verse, um, the Holy Spirit just fell on me. Like I started, I started tearing up. And, and I was so moved, uh, I, I, I just wanna read it to you. It's a little lengthy. But uh, it's, it's, it really strikes at the heart um, of our faith. So this is what Martin Luther, in his commentary on Galatians, has to say about this one verse, verse 4. He says, These words are like so many thunderclaps of protest from heaven against every kind and type of self-merit. How may we obtain remission of our sins? Paul answers, the man who was named Jesus Christ and the Son of God gave himself for our sins. The heavy artillery of these words explodes papacy, works, merits, superstitions. For if our sins could be removed by our own efforts, what need was there for the Son of God to be given for them? Since Christ was given for our sins, it stands to reason that they cannot be put away by our own efforts. Our sins are so great, in fact, 
that the whole world could not make amends for a single sin. The vicious character of sin is brought out by the words, who gave himself for our sins. So vicious is sin that only the sacrifice of Christ could atone for sin. When we reflect that the one little word, sin, embraces the whole kingdom of Satan and that it includes everything that is horrible, we have reason to tremble. But we are careless. We make light of sin. We think that by some little work or merit, we can dismiss sin. This is a false conception of sin. The conception that sin is a small matter, easily taken care of by good works. That we must present ourselves unto God with a good conscience. This attitude is universal and particularly developed in those who consider themselves better than others. Such readily confess that they are frequent sinners, but they regard their sins as of no such importance that they cannot easily be dissolved by some good action. The genius of Christianity takes the words of Paul, who gave himself for our sins, as true and efficacious. We are not to look upon our sins as insignificant trifles. On the other hand, we are not to regard them as so terrible that we must despair. Learn to believe that Christ was given not for petty and imaginary transgressions, but for mountainous sins. Not for one or two, but for all. Not for sins that can be discarded, but for sins that are stubbornly ingrained. Practice this knowledge and fortify yourself against despair, particularly in the last hour when the memory of past sins assails your conscience. Say with confidence, Christ, the Son of God, was given not for the righteous, but for sinners. If I had no sin, I should not need Christ. No, Satan, you cannot delude me into thinking I am holy. The truth is, I am all sin. My sins are not imaginary transgressions, but sins against the first table, unbelief, doubt, despair, contempt, hatred, ignorance of God, ingratitude towards him, misuse of his name, neglect of his word, etc., and sins against the second table, dishonor of parents, disobedience of government, coveting of another's possessions, etc. Granted that I have not committed murder, adultery, theft, and similar sins indeed, nevertheless I have committed them in the heart, and therefore I am a transgressor of all the commandments of God. Because my transgressions are multiplied and my own efforts at self-justification rather a hindrance than a furtherance, Therefore, Christ, the Son of God, gave himself into death for my sins. To believe this is to have eternal life. Martin Luther, 
wrote this in 1535. We are here today because of this justification by faith and the Protestant Reformation. So the true gospel of grace, the gospel of Jesus Christ, is offensive, absolutely offensive. Paul says in verse 10, obviously I'm not trying to win the approval of people, but of God. If pleasing people were my goal, I would not be Christ's servant. This message is offensive. Why is this message offensive? Because it's a gift. It doesn't seem fair. It's the scandalous nature, the radical nature of God's grace. It's the parable of the vineyard workers, that the workers who got hired at the end of the day, right, they worked what, an hour? They get paid the same as the person who worked all day long. It's the grace that the father lavishes over the prodigal son, that's in Luke 15. Some of you hearing this message right now, today, might relate more to the older brother who is in that parable. You've been faithful to the Lord for years, maybe even going above and beyond to please him and to think that your prodigal brother or sister in Christ could squander the father's love and resources and then come back without punishment or repercussion, it assaults your senses. It assaults your sense of justice and right. But that indeed is the scandalous nature of God's grace. Who was the first person to be with Jesus after he died on the cross? It was the thief right next to him, right? Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. Grace is absolutely scandalous. Here is how scandalous it is, okay? So supposedly, the serial killer, Ted Bundy, came to faith in Christ before he was executed. You can watch the interview on YouTube between Ted Bundy and Dr. James Dobson that occurred the day before Bundy was executed in 1989. I grew up in Florida and I remember watching the people on TV celebrating outside the prison when Bundy was executed. But Ted Bundy, who killed at least 30 women, including a 12-year-old girl, if he truly repented and accepted Jesus Christ, he is in heaven. He will be waiting there for you. Isn't that crazy? We can't even wrap our heads around that. That the thief on the cross, or even Ted Bundy, the serial killer, could receive the same heavenly reward as Moses or Paul or you or I? Oftentimes our struggle with this idea of the gospel of grace stems from our lack of self-knowledge. We don't have an accurate picture of our own sin or our own need for God. 
It's Jesus saying, um, and why worry about the speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own? So let me give you an illustration. Let's pretend for a moment, just as a, as a metaphor, that our soul is an automobile. Okay, it's a bit of an oversimplification, but there are generally three types of people. The first type is the person whose car, i.e. their soul, looks like this. I'll put it up there. They think, okay, so I have a flat tire, but I can fix this. I'm a pretty good person. I'm doing the best I can. This person doesn't have an understanding of their own sin. They do not have an understanding of the gospel of grace. Okay, the second type is the person whose car, their soul, looks like this. Their car has wrecked, but it's more like a fender bender. They're like, well, it's broken, but with God's help, we can get this thing working. I'm going to try and get my life together with God's help. This person realizes they need some help, but they don't get it either. All right, so here's a third type of person. A totally wrecked car. The reason the gospel is so offensive is because this is how the Bible sees us in our sin. All of us. All of us. Not just the drunks or the liars or the thieves or the rapists or the murderers but the good people who pray and read their Bibles, who go to church, who homeschool their children. Some of our sins are visible, some of our sins are hidden. But all of us, our souls, in our sin, are totaled. Okay? Romans 3, 10 through 12 says, not, no one is righteous, not even one. No one is truly wise. No one is seeking God. All have turned away. All have become useless. Not one does good, not a single one. Their talk is foul like the stench from an open grave. Their tongues are filled with lies. Sometimes in God's absolute mercy, he will expose the true nature of our sin. And we will see ourselves as we are. This totaled wreck. Now, it's not who God created us to be, but nevertheless, it's the effect of sin on our soul. We look at the wreck, the thought of trying to fix it on our own just evaporates. We drop our little hammer. We drop our sandpaper. We go sit on the curb and we cry. And all we have in our despair is a glimmer of hope that God would come and rescue us in our wretched state. But he's not going to fix that car. He's going to give you a brand new one. This is what is beautiful about the gospel. This is what is offensive about the gospel. We sometimes also take that gift and we marry it 
with good intentions, and then we create a way of living that God never intended. We selectively identify certain sins in our lives, and then we build structures and guardrails, and then we expect everyone else to do the same. All the while, totally ignoring other sins. We know, for instance, that drunkenness is a sin. It says so in the Bible. Okay, and perhaps based on our observations of lives being destroyed through alcoholism, we conclude that no one should drink, right? Nothing good could come from that. So having grown up uh, among alcoholics in my, in my family, I have seen alcohol wreak havoc. But I've also seen people um, not have a problem with it at all. People who socially have a drink or two with their meal and it never becomes a problem. So just for contrast, just to show you my point, um, another sin that's actually more prevalent in scripture than drunkenness, but hardly no one ever talks about, is gluttony. So I would definitely say that I am a sugar and carb addict. Absolutely, without a shadow of a doubt, okay? Once I start, I can't stop. I can't tell you the number of times growing up when my mother would say something like, you ate all the cookies? I just bought them yesterday, right? Or my wife saying, I just bought that carton of ice cream yesterday and you ate the whole thing? It was such a problem, you know, we laugh, but it was such a problem that um, over the years I've had to have two back surgeries. I developed type two diabetes, I was on metformin. Uh, thankfully, by the grace of God, uh, four years ago, I started changing my life, started exercising, dieting. Um, I started taking sugar and white stuff, like the simple carbs out of my diet, and I eventually lost 90 pounds. And uh, I was able to get off the metformin, so control my diabetes with diet and exercise. But literally, when I come to church on Sunday mornings, and they have all those donuts out there, I feel like an alcoholic at a wedding reception with an open bar. I have to walk away. Now, most of you can have a donut or two and stop. I cannot. I absolutely have a predisposition toward the sin of gluttony. And I suppose, right, I could, as, uh, as your senior pastor, I could just have them take away all the donuts so no one would sin, right? <laughs> I could do that. It'd be like a revolt. But that wouldn't be right. So we will judge people for their drinking or their smoking or their tats or their swearing. But what about our own hidden sins? Here are a few. They'll be up on the screen. Overeating. Always needing to be right. Finding fault in others. Practicing favoritism. 
seeing others as competition, coveting what others have, being argumentative, having anger in our heart, boasting and glorifying ourselves, being self-righteous, being selfish, lusting. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't encourage one another to grow in Christ-likeness, but we need to do so in humility, with love and with grace and with the leading of the Holy Spirit, not in the spirit of legalism. I have known so many people over the years who have been repelled by well-meaning Christians. These Christians are trying to help, but rather than realize that we are all saved by grace, that we all still have things that we're working on, some things that are visible, some things that are not, they took the position of the older brother, right, the older brother of the prodigal son, to get all over you about your lifestyle, what you do, what you don't do, a, essentially a self-righteous behavior modification program that almost exclusively focuses on the externals because that's what they can see, that's what they can measure. That is not the gospel of grace. That is not freedom, that is the bondage of legalism. Transformation is an inside-out work that is only accomplished, accomplished through the power of the Holy Spirit. So my prayer is that as we work through the book of Galatians this summer, we would move a few steps closer to being a community where we dance the dance of grace. And your struggle may be something visible or something hidden, right? We all, we all struggle with something or several things. But the state of our sin is like that car that was totaled. We all need Jesus. We need the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. And not just once, we need him every single day of our lives. And we need to come alongside one another, not judging one another, but extending grace and love to one another as together we walk towards Jesus. Whether you are a recovering legalist or you just got out of prison, the gospel of Jesus Christ is a gospel of grace. It is a gift. None of us here, no one deserves it. A trillion years from now, in heaven, we will still be thanking and praising God for saving us from ourselves and from our sin. We are all on equal footing before the throne of God. We are all here because of his grace. Now, I don't want to preach on the gospel of Jesus Christ without giving you an opportunity to receive that gift. So if you have never given your life to Jesus, if you've never drawn a line in the sand and said, Jesus, I am yours, be the Lord of my life. Maybe, or maybe you did it once, but you, you really feel like the nudging from the Holy Spirit to recommit your life to him, I want to encourage you um, to pray along with me in your heart uh, this prayer. Let's pray. 
Lord, I know that in my sin, I'm like that car that was totaled. And there's nothing I can do to save myself. I confess my complete helplessness to fix it. I trust Christ alone as the one who bore my sin when he died on the cross. God, I believe that Christ did all that will ever be necessary for me to stand in your holy presence. I thank you that Christ was raised from the dead as a guarantee of my own resurrection. As best as I can, I put my faith and trust in what Christ did for me on the cross. I thank you, Jesus, that I can now face death knowing that you are my savior. Fill me with your Holy Spirit and transform me into the person you created me to be. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. We're gonna to continue to worship. Uh, prayer team members can come forward. If you uh, just accepted Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, come forward, we wanna pray for you. If, if you want to accept Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, come forward, we wanna pray for you. If you uh, struggle with legalism and you wanna to learn to dance the dance of grace, come forward, we wanna pray for you. Um, if you want us to pray for you to experience the freedom to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit, come forward. We want to pray for you. All right? Let's continue to worship.